Good to see you this day. Sorry, we're having a little bit of tech issues there. We uh, we do we normally have some some music there that's cooler than elevator music, uh, but not not so cool that we hit the copyright on YouTube. Uh, so you can just you can imagine what that was in your head. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is John. I get to be the executive pastor here at Anchor, uh, which means a lot of different things. Sometimes it means I come on stage after Brian to reassure you that we did not drain our bank account uh, for a church planning gig harbor. Uh, so if, if, you, if you were slightly concerned, because you're like, is there a 10% chance they did? We did not. Um, but we are grateful for the generosity of our congregation that has, uh, when you give to Anchor, we do take a percentage of that and put it into a fund for church planting. Um, and so we've been excited to have an awesome opportunity in the, in the form of, of Kramer and Heart Church to use uh, some of that money that, that's been given to Anchor as a church. And so we are excited for that. Um, it's been fun for me being here at Anchor. Uh, my wife and I moved back to Tacoma in December of 19, and at that time we had two kids. We had Griffey, who was four, and now he's six. And we had our daughter, Aria, who was two, and now she's four. Um, and then we were pregnant with our son-to-be, Cy. Um, I said this at the first gathering. No one, no one gave me help. I don't know if I get to say we were pregnant. Like, I didn't throw up for seven months. I still got to drink. But, like, we were expect. Is it she was pregnant and we're expecting? Okay, we're getting, I'm hearing some female yeses here. Men, you smartly just kept your mouth shut. I appreciate that. Helps all of us in this moment. Uh, so we were expecting our son, Cy. Uh, Rose was pregnant with him. Uh, and Griffey, our four-year-old at the time, who was very serious, had one major concern about a new baby sibling. Is this? He goes, I don't want someone else to mess up my projects. It was very official. Uh, for going on 40, he had these projects. And, and for him, projects were basically these things that he would build out of Duplos, out of magnets, out of those big old blocks that you find. Um, he would build stuff out of that. And Arya, his little sister, um, if I'm ascribing best intentions to Arya, would want to also play with his projects or things that he built. And in the best two-year-old or sometimes the worst two-year-old sense of the way she would play by like swatting at them. And they would fall over, and they would burst into a bunch of pieces, and everyone would be crying. And Griffey had a very real concern, which was like, if we introduce another child into the equation, that's another couple years of training them not to mess with my projects that I have to deal with. And uh, as a four-year-old, right, he didn't have a great grasp of structural engineering or design. Uh, he just wanted the structures to be as tall as they possibly could. And so a lot of times, the base or the foundation of the structure would be really, really narrow. And so Rose, uh, who's really detail-oriented, has an older sister who's an engineer and like built stuff with Rose growing up, uh, Rose would talk with Griffey about how to make a more sound structure. And she said this, she said, you got to have a wider base if you want it to be really, really tall. Because that way, if Arya or the new baby comes and, and like swats it or hits it aside, um, it's less likely that the whole thing will tip over. And if it does, probably only part of it's going to tip over. And it's going to be a lot easier for you to rebuild it. So she was working with him on, on this to help him be more okay with his new baby brother. Griffey, like many of us, needed to learn this really important lesson, which is this, that the foundation is the most important part of anything that we build. Right, foundations matter tremendously. Uh, my wife and I, we finally bought our first home last year in around April or May. We've been renting for 10 years going up until that point uh, because housing in the Northwest is awful. Uh, it's just, it's hard. And so we had finally gotten to a spot where we were buying a house. Now, how many of you guys that, that own your house, how many of you have a crawl space in your house? You have a crawl space in your house? Okay, keep your hand up if you like going to the crawl space of your house. 
I'm really hoping there's a hand that I can call on later. Um, I have some issues. But uh, no, I hate going into the crawl space in my house. Like, I'm not claustrophobic. I'm not a large person. I'm pretty short, actually. But like, I hate going into the crawl space in my house. But I remember, like, it is a large decision to buy a home. And so I remember when we had the inspection, like I went into the crawl space with the inspector so I could see what he was seeing. He could show me any areas of concern that he had found because I knew that if the foundation was poor, nothing else was going to matter in the house. They had just done a really nice remodel to get it ready to sell and like all that nice new flooring, the paint, the appliances, uh, all those things, like none of that would matter if the foundation was solid. Because you see, with a poor foundation, you can have the nicest things in every other part of your house, but it's not going to make up for the fact that the foundation isn't sturdy. But it's interesting, right? The, the inverse is actually true, right? If the foundation is solid, if you have a solid foundation, it's okay to have s other parts of your house not be as great. Those can be fixed, developed, changed, turned into something beautiful that will last because the foundation is solid. We're talking about buildings, we're talking about foundations today because as we go through this series, Exiles, where we're going through the book of 1 Peter, he is using this analogy of a building in the passage we're about to read. And as you'll see, right, he uses an illustration like I just have in hopes that many people are going to understand this concept that he's trying to teach. Because this is a really important concept today. I actually talked about it last summer, and I said, hey, we're going to come back to it uh, in January. And so the analogy that, just to set the stage, kind of set it up, is this. He's talking about foundations. He says that we, the church, or followers of Jesus, are all being built into a spiritual house. And that we are like the stones used to build the house. And he says this. He says, Jesus, he is actually the most important stone. He's what we can call the cornerstone. There's actually a prophecy in the Old Testament that says Jesus will be the cornerstone of the church. The cornerstone is the most important part of the foundation. It sits at the corner, it's large, and it determines the direction of the building. You cannot have a good foundation without a good cornerstone, and you cannot have a good building without a good foundation. And so Peter is saying this. He's saying that everyone in the church or followers of Jesus are also like stones being built together in a house, and Jesus is the cornerstone. So that's, the, that's kind of the, the stage that we're setting. Let's read it together. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it picks up and says this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, and this is where we see the Bible quoting itself, right? It's quoting a different part, one of those Old Testament prophecies. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, and again it's quoting Scripture again, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
There's a ton going on in this passage, right? It's why I wanted to set the stage as we went into it, kind of really said, here's where we're going, here's what this looks like, here's what it means. And there's a few things on a surface level that really stand out, right? It says this, when we allow Jesus, that cornerstone, to set the direction of our building, we become this chosen people, this royal priesthood. When we say yes to Jesus, we get to be a part of this new house, this new family with everyone else who has said yes to him. It's called this, chosen people or royal priesthood, God's special possession. It also says this, we are also living stones, but without that cornerstone, we are lost. There's no foundation for what we are building without Jesus. So again, when you say yes to Jesus, you become part of this, this house, this new family of God. Jesus is described as the living stone, and followers of Jesus, or people who said yes to Jesus, are called chosen people. And so as we look at these, really the two phrases that I want to unpack and we're going to spend most of our time on today are this, the living stone and chosen people. Because I think that these are the really important things from this passage. So we're going to look at this idea of the living stone. So 1 Peter 2, 4 says this again. It says, as you come to him, the living stone. Right, we know this. This is clearly referring to Jesus. It talks also later, right? It says that everyone who said yes to Jesus are also like living stones. And so we see this analogy where it says Jesus is the stone and you are a stone. And so a, a scholar named Karen Jobes actually says this. She says, when, when, the, when the author of scripture does it here, he says, she's implying that their nature derives from the nature of the resurrected Christ. Therefore, the Christian's understanding of their situation is to be shaped by all that Christ has experienced. Most important, by Christ's victory of suffering and death. I love that. It says this, that just, that we're using the same words to describe people in Jesus. Jesus is the living stone, people are a living stone. And it's because of that that the scholar, Karen Job says this, she says that we should understand our worldview, our, our ideology, the way we look at the world. That lens should be seen not through what culture says, not through our interpretation, but should be seen first and foremost through Jesus and his experience here on earth. And so it's, it's important to look at this idea of who Jesus is then, because that's how we understand who we are. And it's interesting, we see this flip of language about Jesus. Uh, the, the author of scripture in this moment says that Jesus is precious to those who believe. He is a hope to those who believe, but he's also a stumbling block to those who don't. Now, stumbling block is a really interesting phrase to be used for the person and figure of Jesus. I think it's really important that we spend some time, like, drilling down, what does it mean when we say stumbling block? Because when we don't really drill down on that, when we are careless with our ideas or definitions of stumbling block, it can have some really bad outcomes. See, I've watched uh, Jesus' followers um, use this phrase of Jesus as a stumbling block to excuse their own actions. Though when they are careless or, or thoughtless or even harmful or cruel to others and then called out on their behavior, like, well, Jesus was a stumbling block too. Like, that's not, that's not what it means. When I read this phrase stumbling block, the, the absolute first thing that comes to mind is the words of a, of a professor I had in college who was talking about how to give a good sermon, like we're doing now, hopefully. Um, and he said this, he said, he said, John, a good sermon should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, and never mix up the two. Should comfort the afflicted, and afflict the comfortable, but never mix up the two. It's like, do you know why a good sermon should do that, John? It's like, because that's what Jesus did. If you look at Jesus' ministry, if you look at the way that he interacted with people, he comforted the afflicted. 
He was comfort to those that society had pushed on the edges, those that society had no place for, those that had been disinherited, those that had no people, those who had been rejected, had been hurt, had been pushed to the side. Jesus brought comfort to those. And he brought discomfort to those who probably needed it. He made people feel uncomfortable who had gotten too used to being comfortable. People who had gotten too used to their status, their role, their place in society, and either mistreated those around them or didn't care about those who were less fortunate. They were always a little bit uncomfortable with Jesus' teachings. I think he's a stumbling block in that way. I think another way that Jesus is a stumbling block is this. Uh, throughout the history uh, since Jesus left the earth about 2,000 or so years ago, um, there's been a lot of critiques of Christianity, and most of those critiques have actually focused on the followers of Jesus, the people who are following Jesus that call themselves Christians. And to an extent, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Like, we put it on the wall. This is an imperfect community of Jesus followers. That's our warning sign that says, if you're, if you're expecting this to be a production, this to be, like, we're, we're great here, that, that's not it. I hope it's also our warning sign to anyone who's a little too prideful coming in the doors. It says this, that, like, we're broken. We need everyone to know that and acknowledge that when we walk through these doors. And so, yes, the followers of Jesus and those who claim to follow Jesus and probably didn't follow Jesus have made some huge mistakes. And saying that we're all imperfect does not excuse the travesties that have been wrought by followers of Jesus on other human beings. It does not excuse that at all. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that it's easy to critique the followers of Jesus, but when you try to critique Christianity as a whole, when you try to say that all of Christianity is broken or bad or harmful, there's a stumbling point, which is the person of Jesus. See, it's really easy to critique followers of Jesus. It's really easy to critique me. It's impossible to critique Jesus. Cannot do it. In fact, the vast majority of world religions have stumbled over Jesus so much, they're like, we can't say he doesn't exist because it's proven that he was a historical figure. We can't say that his teachings were flawed because we actually can't find any flaw with his teachings. So what do most religions do when they're creating their ideologies is this, they actually incorporate the person of Jesus somehow into that. They're like shoehorn him in because they're like, I can't get rid of this. Like, I can't get rid of Jesus. They're stumbling over Jesus. They're tripping over Jesus. And they, they're like, I guess we're just going to bring him along with us because I don't know what else to do with him. Jesus is a stumbling block because you, you just don't know what to do with him. It's the beauty of Jesus. I think another way that, that Jesus is a stumbling block for, for us is in the fullness of his character and in his teachings. I think a lot of times, the, the, if you can think back, and maybe this is the first time you're exposed to the person of Jesus, and that's awesome. But I think a lot of us coming into this room today have had a moment where we first heard about the person of Jesus and resonated with some aspect of who Jesus was. And the thing that you first resonated about with Jesus, if you're like me, is probably something that lines up with your pre-existing worldview or ideology. Maybe for you, it's the Jesus included everyone. Maybe for you, it's the Jesus valued scripture. Maybe for you, it's Jesus cared for the poor and the sick. Maybe for you, it's the Jesus who flipped the tables in the temple. Whoever that is, there's probably an aspect of Jesus that you're like, yeah, that's my Jesus. And then if you're like me, you read a gospel and you go, I don't like that, Jesus. Like, I like 90%. Can I get 90% Jesus? Because that 10% I don't know what to do with and I don't like. Because Jesus doesn't fit into the categories that we have. Jesus doesn't fit into the categories that the world has. He actually transcends all of those categories. 
is a pastor named Scott Sauls who studied under Tim Keller in New York and then later launched a church in Nashville. And uh, he wrote a book called Jesus Outside the Lines. And in it, he does a really great job of explaining why Jesus doesn't fit into the categories that we have. And there's four or five pages that I would love to read to you because I think they're that good, but we don't have time. Uh, and so I'm going to paraphrase here. These are, these are Scott Saul's words that I'm paraphrasing, just to make sure credit is, is where credit's due. But in the book, he says this. The early church placed women in high regard in both liberal and conservative ways. Jesus elevated women. He used women to be the first messenger of the good news of his resurrection at a time where women had no voice. He championed the rights of women in ways. Historically been a liberal approach. But he also called people to monogamy to live the countercultural way of spending your life with one person and one person only. The people this most benefited at the time, it was women. Men would often have multiple wives at this time and treat them as interchangeable or discardable. The traditionally conservative value of monogamy is one that Jesus called his people to. The early church was also ardently pro-life in all aspects. They valued women who were pregnant and would take in female infants that had been discarded simply because they were female and unwanted by their fathers. Like many conservatives today, they had a high value on the unborn. And like many liberals today, they also ardently cared for the young women and children for a long period of time after the child's birth. The early church was known for caring for the poor, something that is often perceived as a liberal value. However, in a conservative fashion, monetarily caring for the poor was never mandated or enforced. It was left up to individuals to do so out of their own kindness and sense of obligation to society and the community as a whole. The early church grew so rapidly in large part because it couldn't be fit into a box. It wasn't liberal, it wasn't conservative, it wasn't the government, it was simply the church. I love those examples. Again, the book is called Jesus Outside the Lines. If you're interested in, in picking up a copy and reading more, uh, I'd love to talk with you after you read it. It's so good. I love that line that Scott uses at the ends. It wasn't liberal, it wasn't conservative, it wasn't the government, it was simply the church. I believe this, the early church had a leg up on us. The people leading the church, the people a part of the church, the people who were in the gathering spaces, leading the groups, leading the outreach ministries that the church was doing at the time, many of them had been around Jesus when he lived. Or if they hadn't, a parent had, or an aunt had, or an uncle had, or a relative had, someone had seen the person of Jesus walk on earth and do his earthly ministry. I think because of that, when we look and say, man, what made the early church so different? Why can't we get back to that? I think it's this. We need to get closer to Jesus if we want to get back to that. If we want this church or any church in this country or in this world to look like the early church did, the one that we see in Acts, God's saying the answer is right there. He's saying, get closer to Jesus. Get closer to the living stone because I think that's why the early church was this way. They were so close to Jesus that they had an easier time grasping the picture of what is this church that God wants us to become. But we stumble on that sometimes, don't we? We stumble on the fact that Jesus doesn't fit into our worldview. I think that's okay. I think it's good. There's another way that I think it's good that we stumble on Jesus. It's because it's of what he asks of us. See, Jesus is abundantly clear in his teachings there is no one more worth following than Jesus. There is no one more worthy of our attention, our affection, our heart than Jesus. There is no one who can offer hope in life eternal, let alone life present like Jesus can. There just isn't. And Jesus offers it freely, but he says there is a trade-off. When you say yes to Jesus, he says, I want you and I want all of you. And not just for a moment in time, but for the rest of your life. 
We stumble on that sometimes, right? I was talking with, with Brian as we were prepping this message together earlier this week, and, and Brian told me about a time that he kind of tongue-in-cheek said, my whole life, like, I could give God three good years. I remember being a, a college intern on a mission trip with some high school kids, and, and my buddy Nathan was one of those high school kids, and, and Nathan loves Jesus, has loved Jesus his whole life, is a follower of Jesus today. And I remember we got up stupidly early, which for teenagers is like 6.30 a.m. And we're standing in the driveway outside this house getting ready to go somewhere for the day. And I remember looking over at Nathan going, how you doing, man? And he goes, man, it's too stinking early. Because I'm not even a Christian before 9 a.m. And I love the, like, tongue-in-cheek, but also honesty of these moments from, like, Brian early in his walk and my friend Nathan as a high schooler where, where I get it, right? I think we stumble on this part of Jesus. We're like, Jesus, like, can I give you a B? Like, can I do, like, 80% of myself? Maybe 85. But can I keep that 15, Jesus? He says, it doesn't work that way. Or we say, God, I'll give you everything, but I want to keep this part of my life. As a teenager, I struggled with this. As a teenager and as a young adult, I said, God, I'll give you everything, but let me keep my dating relationships. God, I'll give you everything, but I still want to date who I want and do what I want with them because I think that, that, I just want that for me. As an adult, I do this too. I'm like, God, I'll give you everything, but I'm still going to freak out about my finances because I actually don't trust you enough. God, I'm going to give you everything, but I'm worried about my kids, so I don't actually want to give you all of that we do this, and Jesus says it doesn't work that way, and, and if you just trust me with everything, you're going to see everything back tenfold from what you could imagine. But it's hard. I think it's okay to acknowledge like, that he is a stumbling block in these moments, but at the end of the day, he's the cornerstone. He is the only one worthy of building a foundation around and building this house on. He is the cornerstone. And we get to see this, right, that we are we're chosen people. God's looked at us and he says, you're my people. First Peter 2, 4 says this. It says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Over the summer, like I said earlier, we taught on this passage, and, and I said that we were going to come back to it here in January. And one of the things that I said time and time again when I taught that week on this very verse is this, is that it's people who are the house of God. People are the church. The church is not a building. The church is not a program. The church is not a ministry board. The church is not a class. The church is not a cool Instagram page. The church is people. Like, that's what the church is. If this property went away, Anchor Church would still exist. We'd figure it out because it's people. Right? Like, we, we had 140 people show up at an info meeting, and we don't know where the church is going to go. We don't know what it's going to look like. They just said, I think we're going to come together and start a new thing because God's put it on our heart in Gig Harbor. People are the church. He's saying this so clearly in this passage, right? And he's taking this huge theological shift for his readers where he's saying, back in the old days before Jesus, it used to be that the presence of God was confined to a room inside of a physical building of a temple. And you could not go into that room unless you were the priest, and it was that one special day a year that you got to go into that room and experience the presence of God. And he's saying, guess what? The presence of God is all around you. The presence of God is not reserved for a priest one day a year that you have to be afraid of, but the presence of God, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the presence of God is living and among us, and it is around you in the faces of those who have said yes to Jesus. This is such a radical shift that saying you felt separate from God, and then he came here, and you're like, I want God with me all the time, and he's saying in this text that God is with you. You can see him in the people who have said yes to Jesus. 
There should be something different about those of us in this room that have said yes to Jesus because we have the presence of God in our hearts. That we are being built into this spiritual house. We don't have to go to a sacred room to find God anymore, but we can find God in the people around us. That's such a big point for this audience who's reading it, but there's actually some life-changing hope right now that Peter gives them at the end of the passage. In verses 9 and 10, it says this, your chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, if you have a physical Bible, your Bible app, and you're underlining, I want you to underline or highlight God's special possession. I found I've gotten more sentimental as I've become a parent. I didn't cry at movies. I, I cry at every Pixar movie. <laughs> like, I, I rewatched Inside Out for the eighth time because my daughter's obsessed with it, which, like, I'm glad because it's about talking about our feelings, and that's cool. Um, I cried again for the eighth time, like, watching that movie. We watched Encanto the other day for, again, the fourth time, because I realized, I cried at the end. If you haven't seen it yet, it's good. You should. Um, and so one of the things I've become more sentimental about is these, uh, these TikToks or reels where you see um, a teenager or a young adult show what their, like, security item looked like that their parent gave them as a two-year-old. They're like, my parents gave me the security blanket, and now it's, like, this little thing. Or one that kind of freaked me out but then made me cry a little bit. Um, someone posted a reel and it was like, when I was born, my mom bought two Elmos. And one she kept in a box and one she gave to me. And the one she gave to him looks terrifying. But it was just so well loved. And I love this idea that we are God's special possession. That the same fear and, and worry that a child has when their special security blanket goes missing or that special stuffed animal and the way that they want to stop everything to go find that lost thing, that's how God feels about you. We see that example, right? We see that Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one. I, again, like, I've, I've had three emergency searches in the last month because I have toddlers for their, like, one special thing, and I love that God thinks of us in just as special of a way. But there are moments where God says, you're lost and I'm going to drop everything to come to you and find you and rescue you because you are my special possession. I love that. But he keeps going. He keeps going in this passage. He says, you're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. The last couple of weeks, Pastor Brian's talked about this idea of a new inheritance for people that had lost their inheritance, and we're seeing it again in this passage. Uh, worship team and community, you guys can come forward as we get ready to close this out. But I love this part where he says, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And it's not just that the church that, the, it's not just that, the church that he was writing to wasn't a family, but they, they had no one. These people that he was writing to, it's why we call the series Exiles, right? They had no one. They had no inheritance. They had no standing. They had no family. And at a time where family and community were so tied to identity, which was so tied to worth, they had nothing. And I love that through these words in Scripture, God is saying this, you now are everything. You are now a people you might have been disinherited from your people, but now you're a part of God's forever family. He's saying this. He says, I know this thing that the world says is so important was taken from you, and it hurts so badly, and I'm sorry. But God has given you something even greater than you ever could have imagined. God does that time and time again with us, doesn't he? Where he looks at us and he says, I see, that, I see your pain. 
I see you've lost something dear to you. I see that you've been hurt. You've been hurt by those who are supposed to be closest to you. And I love that in the person of Jesus, he looks at us in our pain and he says, so was I. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends who watched him do miracles, who watched him walk on water and betrayed him. He saw the Son of God and he betrayed him. And I love that he says, I've seen your pain and I've been in your pain and trust me, there is hope on the other side of it. I love that he says, trust in me and I'll replace it with something far greater than you've ever imagined. And yes, sometimes we have to wait to the other side of heaven for that promise to be realized, but God says this and we see this in who he is. He always follows through on his promises. He says, I know you've lost your people. I know you've been rejected. I was too. And even though your people rejected you, there is a new people and a new family that's far better than any earthly family you could ever have. It's what it means to follow Jesus, right? It's what it means to say yes to Jesus. Saying yes to Jesus is, is acknowledging this. It's saying, I, I believe what Anchor puts on that wall out there is that warning sign, is that proclamation of we are all imperfect. We are all broken and we can't do it on our own anymore. Saying, Jesus, I know you lived here on earth and you were perfect. You were perfect because we couldn't be. You died and you were punished for my brokenness. You were punished for my imperfection. And three days later, you rose again from the dead. And because of that, we have hope. Yes, we have hope in life eternal, but hope in life present as well. When we say yes to Jesus, we get that relationship with God and we get to be a part of this new forever family that Jesus is building today. If you've never said yes to Jesus, I would encourage you to take some time right here, right now, and say, is today the day that I say yes to Jesus? That I say no to doing things on my own and yes to doing things Jesus' way because it's far better than anything I can do on my own. I want to say yes to being a part of this new forever family that God is building just for me. If that's you, if you've said yes to Jesus today or you want to pray with someone and, and walk through what it means to say yes to Jesus today, we have people at the black walls at the front of the room who would love to pray with you about that. Also, if you're here and you just want to pray with someone about anything else in your life, they would love to pray with you as well. And then at the front and the back of the room, we have people who are serving communion. Communion is this. It's a moment where those of us who have said yes to Jesus, even if you said yes to Jesus in this very second, it's a moment where those of us who have said yes to Jesus partake of communion and, and we remember that moment that Jesus had with his disciples, with the one who was going to betray him right there at the table, where Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We do it every week here because we think it's so important that we remember that sacrifice that Jesus, the living stone, made so that we can have a relationship with God, that we can be in that family, that new spiritual house that he is building together. So I'd encourage you to take a, a moment to pray, take a moment to, to sit and be, and again, go and, and, and pray with someone at the prayer stations or come and take communion. We have gluten-free communion in the back kind of corner where I'm pointing by the soundboard. And as we head into that time, the band will be playing a song, and so as we prepare to go on that time, I just want to pray for us. So church, will you pray with me? God, we thank you so much 
for who you are. God, we thank you for the fact that you sent your son, Jesus, to be the living stone, the cornerstone. God, we thank you for the fact that he sets the direction of what you're building, not us, because if it was up to us, we'd mess it up. So God, we thank you for the firm foundation that Jesus is. We thank you for the fact that you said, I've given you a new people, a new family, a new identity, far greater than anything the world could ever give you, you could ever inherit from the world. So God, if there's anyone here who is, who is on the fence, God, about saying yes to you, God, will your presence be made known to them? Would you press in on them? God, would they feel and know the truth that your way is better than anything we could do on our own? God, I thank you for this room. I thank you for this room today at, at nine and for those who are part of this church family. God, you say this, that for those of us who have said yes, we're all living stones. And so God, I thank you for that. I thank you for the presence of God that we get to see in this room. I thank you for the presence of God that we're going to get to see in a renewed way in Gig Harbor through the faithfulness of one of your followers. So God, I just thank you so much for everything you're doing and everything that you're going to do in the future. In your name, amen.